Hello and welcome to the Housing Insight Conference special episode of the TLF Gems podcast. Uh, I'm here with Chris Elliott who was the master of ceremonies for the day and did a, did a great job sort of corralling everyone and, and keeping to time which is particularly <laughs> challenging on this, on this day. So Chris, what did you, what did you make of the day? Um, well, first and foremost, thank you very much for inviting me to this uh, esteemed podcast <laughs> and filling some very big shoes in, in terms of Greg's shoes. Um, I thought it was a really good day. And, and I think, like all of these conferences that we've hosted over you know, a number of years that I've been here, I think it does highlight TLF at its best. But I think that what was particularly good about the day was that it absolutely resonated with all of the challenges that the social housing sector is facing right now. And, and, and I think that you know, the, the feedback that I got from the, the delegates that he at attended also said exactly that, that it really did capture what is going on in the sector right now, because it's a sector that I think, as I said at the beginning, even in the seven and a half years that I've been at TLF, I don't think I've seen a sector have such enormous change change that's sometimes heaved upon it by outside influences um, and some of it's not been good change but I think broadly the majority of it is positive but I think yeah I think just the day just encapsulated you know what a busy sector it is and how much you know that that's what's going on within it it was really interesting I think to your point about change and all the pressures that the sector's under mm. you know if you go back I don't know, five years, we were already talking about challenges of supply and how, how we build enough houses. Mm -hmm. And then you have the impact of, of kind of the economic crisis, pushing more people into, you know, needing social housing. Mm -hmm. Then you have universal credit. And then just when the sector's getting its head around that, you have Grenfell and, yeah. and everything about, yeah. you know, well, obviously the safety aspect of that, but also involving uh, yeah. customers and tenants in decision making. So yeah, there, there is an awful lot. And then you throw the digital revolution on top of well, all of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, there's a, there's a lot to deal with. No, absolutely, and and I, I think there's a whole many. I mean, you've just encapsulated all of it there, really. But I think there's just a tremendous amount still going on within the sector. And you know, as I say, at some point, you know, when austerity was hitting hard, and housing associations were forced into becoming more commercially minded. I think that that had a very profound effect on housing associations in some really negative ways, I would add. But I think that what's changed, just this sense of, of recognising the impact of delivering consistently high service, this sense, we talk about it all the time, this sense of consistently doing your best at what matters most to your residents, I think that that's been a, a definite positive. And, and I think that the conference really did encapsulate a great deal of that. But the one thing, I, I think the digital thing was also the really interesting, I, I thought it was one of the more thought-provoking bits, which of course you did, yeah. you know, in terms of your, in, in terms of your session. But, but no, it was, it was an excellent day. Yeah, no, we're going to go on during the rest of this episode mm. to, to have a chat with, with each of the speakers about their, about their talk and, and, and what they covered. So uh, hopefully you should all get a flavour of, of what we covered. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that, again, I mean, we just got the blend right, you know, and, and, and Andy's session at the beginning t 
teed it up wonderfully. And, and I'm sure that Andy will, you know, say that he absolutely deliberately did that. And of course he probably did. But he teed it up wonderfully with, with those breakout sessions that got delegates to talk about you know, what, what was going on in their worlds. And what was remarkable about it was that exactly what was going on in terms of their challenges, the things that they were focusing on right now was actually by magic covered by all of the rest of the sessions during the day. You know, so everybody talked about digital. Everybody talked about the need of having to give residents more of a voice and not just to give it as a bit of a kind of a box tick, but to genuinely do things on the back of that. And, and to recognize that repairs still to this day is the true definitive maker and breaker of residents' overall perception, you know, of them. And of course, you know, the complaints bit at the end. But, but yeah, you know, it was really, it was a good day. So I'm here with Andy Butler, who did a really interesting workshop session at the conference uh, entitled Change and its Impact on Customer Satisfaction. Uh, and Andy started with a sort of quick summary of some of the things that we all know are challenges in the sector. Um, so you just want to talk us through those, Andy? Yeah, so following on from the Green Paper, Social Housing Green Paper, um, we spoke around the regulatory reform, uh, particularly universal credit and what that means, the impact uh, to landlords. Uh, we also talked around the challenges facing landlords at the minute right now. So we have not enough property for mm -hmm. demand. We talked around the fact that tenants are more savvy, more discerning customers. And we also talked a lot around technology, the cost, but the efficiencies that that can bring to social landlords. Brilliant. And after you'd finished speaking, we broke up into to four or five little groups and we had a kind of you know, flip chart workshop session. Uh, and you'd asked them to talk about you know, what the key challenges were, how they're going to overcome them. What were the main themes that came out? Right. So, yeah, really interesting. We had all the groups came back with the same themes, but the two overriding challenges were, number one, the challenge of repairs, maintenance, and rising tenant expectation, and how you cope with that and deal with that. Um, and the challenges were that tenants want things dealt with yesterday, like they see in other sectors. So that was number one. But number two was digital and what that can mean to um, a social landlord. So that is making it more efficient, making it more accessible to tenants. Um, but really, really interesting that every group came out with the same mm -hmm. challenges. And I think the revelation was that you know, they're all working on the same things. Um, yeah, and the, the one about digital was interesting. Certainly on the group that I was kind of next to, um, the main thing they were talking about when it came to digital was, was about systems, integrating different systems that don't talk to each other. And I think in the housing sector, that's something that's exacerbated by all the mergers and acquisitions that have gone on. So you've got two housing associations that, that might each have a brilliant system that works for them, but stitch them together and it doesn't work for the, the sort of the entity that you end up with. Yeah, and you're dead right. You know, these systems, these legacy systems were fit for purpose at one point in time, and then they get tweaked, and there's bolt-ons that have been added, and they still work, but the minute you merge, they don't talk to each other. Mm. And the challenge is, how do you get all the MI data out of that internally and communicate internally as a starting point before even the customer gets involved? Mm. So it can be quite challenging and quite fragmented, and, and the question is, where do you start? Mm. And how much do you spend? I was interested later on, one of the guys had been in my workshop was quite exciting because they've just, you know, commissioned a brand new 
you know, one solution system that's going to fix all the problems. Uh, and he seemed quite enthusiastic about that, you know, understandably. But when he asked Vic, uh, Vicky Bonner from Clarion Housing during her session, it was a Q&A after her session, she, she seemed a little bit sceptical about whether it would be the one true system based on her own experiences. It's very true. It's a, it's a true point. And I think, you know, what, does one system actually exist that's going to fix everything? Because I think what there is now... Is it future-proofed? That's the question you have mm-hmm. to ask. And I don't think I don't think technology is the answer. I think it's part of the answer. But I think what it comes down to is your people and your processes using technology effectively. So if you pin all your hopes on tech, which I think a lot of these organisations do, I think you're going down the wrong road. Mm-hmm. I think, and it came out in the groups that you have to think bigger picture. And it's the culture as well as the tech, and it's got to work hand in hand. I think the other thing that struck me, again, going back to the, the, the green papers as the sort of root of all this, there was a bit of talk about, you know, we need to kind of engage with, with residents and customers, we need to give them a voice. But actually, I think people felt that, that the sector's done pretty well in terms of that. We are engaging with customers, we are getting their voices heard. The challenges were more around the systems, the digital stuff, repairs as an ongoing, you know, a big issue for the sector. Universal credit didn't really come up very much at all. No, and I, I think it was mentioned. It's always it's there. It's gonna be there, but we are adapting. Um, and I think we've we've almost got past that now. It's 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 come in. It's arrived. You deal with it. But then, what do you do in the new world? The same challenges are still going to be there. You know, and that's what we're all facing up to. It came out in the groups, but the main thing I'll always say is everyone's got the same challenges, mm-hmm. um, and it's how you move forward with it. Yeah, and I think just as perhaps a point to end on, probably one of the most um, positive things to come out of that session, I thought, was it was almost a bit of catharsis that everyone could share the fact we've all got the same challenges, we're all struggling with the same things. So I think I think delegates quite enjoyed that opportunity to to sort of share, if not solutions, at least to understand that everyone's got the same challenges. It and, is, and, and you know, you, we all work in our own world. Uh, we all work on our own little problems, and you do you get fixated on it. But it's nice to know that you're all almost working together in your own little world. I'm here with Vicky Harris, one of my colleagues from TLF, and in the morning she spoke about involving tenants in the satisfaction process. Uh, So Vicky, do you want to give us a a quick synopsis of your talk? Mm, Yes, well it's something that um, housing associations are increasingly um, having focus on, obviously after Grenfell and the Social Housing Green Paper, um, and even um, recently the National Housing Fed have put their draft plan for Together with Tenants. Um, So it's something that's always been on the radar and having increasing focus. Um, And I think it's something that our clients sometimes come to us and ask for a bit of advice on how they might be able to do this. Obviously, going out to survey tenants, the survey process itself, you're speaking to them. Um, But there's sort of other ways you can incorporate tenants into the process. Um, The exploratory research, so what you might want to investigate in the main survey. Um, And I think a key thing is the tenant scrutiny panels. Not all housing associations have them, and I think some do them to varying degrees of success. Um, But that's certainly where you can get them involved in the outset with your survey, um, reviewing the questionnaire, having input feedback on the questionnaire, and then um, more so at the back end, really, where, I mean, the survey is just the start of the process, really, isn't it? Mm. The main aim of doing a survey is to take action and, you know, essentially make things better for your tenants. So I think this is where you can get your scrutiny group, um, your scrutiny panel involved in how you're going to do that, where you're going to make improvements, what you're going to do, and then they can, you know, 
they can go out to tenants, they can validate it, you know, they can hold you to account um, on it. So yes, I think in a nutshell, that's probably the crux of it. I think what, what I found really interesting about that is it's particularly perhaps in, in social housing, although it's maybe a general trend, people think about customer satisfaction in terms of scores and benchmarking and this is a little bit unfair, but it can often become quite sort of tick in the box. We've done this. This is the score. Mm. How does it stack up? And what you're describing is a much more kind of qualitative, allowing customers mm. to shape the whole process. You know, what's on the questionnaire? What should we be digging into? Mm. And then at the tail end of that, here are the results. Okay, well, what should we do as a result mm. of the results? Yeah, yeah I think that's a, a fair um, summary, really. And I think at the end of the day, you would question why you're doing any survey. You know, obviously there's time and costs and investment in that. Um, you know, STAR isn't regulatory anymore. Um, and I think there's probably a hangover of um, housing associations still doing it because they've always done it. Um, and I think, and obviously benchmarking is a big thing in housing. Um, and I guess as a bit of an aside from that, really, it sort of puzzles me benchmarking in housing because, you know, if you're doing it for the right reasons and sharing best practices, you know, there's no commercial interest there. So you can, you can be really open and honest. And indeed, Vicky was in the afternoon. But I don't really see that happening. And I feel like benchmarking is, is done because it is a bit of a box ticking exercise. And I think comparing housing associations against other housing associations is a bit strange because from a tenant's perspective, they probably haven't got any experience of another housing association mm. so when they're ringing into like a call center they won't be comparing you to housing association down the road they're comparing you to the banks the insurance the utilities the you know the councils or who, the, the other organizations that they deal with it is a more of a qualitative thing so i think you need to understand you know what your tenants are saying and scores don't necessarily give you any meat on the bones it's the mm. comments that really give you as I say, the meat on the bones to understand what you're going to change and how you're going to make things better for your tenants. And I think we see that in the comments that we get, you know, on our housing um, surveys, that they're really detailed, they're really mm. vivid and they're really, you know, emotive. And that's like the full range of emotions. It's people's home, isn't it? So mm, absolutely, of course yeah. it's a, an emotive yeah, subject. Absolutely. It's just, I always think a big part of the, the process, the, you know, the reason we're doing this is to help everyone see that there are real human beings out mm. there who are feeling feelings we've created for them Um, and that's to me a good customer survey process helps with that rather than hindering it by turning everyone into a number Mm. and I think to be honest housing probably are good at that you know Mm. social housing is there for a you know a reason and a purpose and I think in some ways housing our housing clients probably are more mindful of their you know their tenants their residents than perhaps some organizations are and perhaps certainly if you've got lots of customers they perhaps can be sort of numbers and a bit you know a bit further away yeah i agree with that it is it is actually a customer focused industry yeah. Um, yeah. Although, you know, perhaps people within the industry are, are a bit harsh on themselves sometimes yes i think that's probably a fair fair summary thanks vicky Our guest speaker was Vicky Bonner from Clarion Housing Group, uh, and I've caught up with Nigel Hill, uh, our founder and chairman, and also the account manager for Clarion. So Nigel, could you just give us a few words about what Vicky said on the day and how that ties in with the work that TLF has done uh, for Clarion uh, on their repairs service? Yeah, well, I mean, Vicky's talk was really interesting because um, Clarion has always really been at the forefront of many 
uh, developments in social housing. So, for example, if we go back 15 years to when Broomley Housing Association, which only had 12,000 homes at the time and was, was the very early forerunner of Clarion, was really the first housing association in the UK to use external repairs contractors. Mm. And that, over the following decade, you know, and really they started doing that in the 90s, and over the following decade, by, you know, the, the early part of this millennium, that had become quite a trend in the rest of the uh, social housing world. But, interestingly, it's a little bit like sending call centres to India. It seems like a great idea at the time and lots of companies then follow the lead and do it. But as with many things, when you get into the detail, everything isn't quite the same as the theory was going to be. Mm. So over the last two or three years, Clarion has bought some of the uh, responsive repair service back in-house. Now they had a very good model for doing this because part of that service was always kept in-house. They have an in-house provider which is part of Clarion, it's called CBS Community Building Services and that had always provided the service for some of the Clarion homes and what we found on the work that we do for Clarion is that um, because we do monthly repairs, tracker surveys, so we do over 1,500 interviews every month across all the repairs contractors, including the in-house one, CBS. And what we were finding was that whilst you know, the CBS customer sat satisfaction scores showed a steadily increasing trend line over really the last five years up to some you know really quite excellent levels you know that would put them you know in the top five percent not just um in social housing but you know against all organizations in the uk based on tlf's uh, league table or the uk csi the external repairs contractors, on the whole, just hadn't improved anything like as much. And their customer satisfaction scores tended to be much more volatile, which suggested to me that um, sometimes they were allocating more resources to that service they were providing for Clarion than they were at other times. Anyway, in two tranches over the last couple of years, uh, Clarion brought the uh, repair service back in-house. Uh, the second tranche is very recent, but if, uh, if we talk about the first tranche, which happened, oh, two to three years ago. The, the in-house provider took over from a contractor whose scores were not disastrous, but you know, nothing like in the top 5%. And oh, over the space, probably of not much more than a year, 
possibly 18 months, but over a relatively short period of time, uh, the lady in charge of the in-house service gradually pulled their customer satisfaction scores really up to the levels that um, CBS were achieving. So, you know, right up in the top 10%, probably in the top 5% compared to other UK companies generally. So this did clearly show that, you know, there were some advantages to bringing the service back in-house. Do we know why that is? Um, is it sort of cultural? Is it about resources being allocated? Is it being able to do more than one job when you visit? And you know, what, what's the driver of that? Well, I think, um, I, I don't think it's about being um, particularly um, better at doing more than one job when you visit, although it has been a policy of Clarions to try and make their um, operatives more multi-skilled than you know is is the traditional norm in the industry. Although I think that 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 process is still pretty much in its early days, and I think that'll bear fruit more in the future than it has so far. I think in the case of the example I'm talking about, which they called. ASR, which stood for Affinity Sutton Repairs at the time. Affinity Sutton was the one of the two housing associations that merged to form Clarion. So the lady who was in charge of, of ASR certainly took customer satisfaction very seriously. So I, I went to several meetings where I explained the whole things to all her key staff and we looked at the results and we looked at very specific things, uh, even quite small changes that they could make to improve customer satisfaction and it really was a big deal within the organisation. Um, and obviously you know, the allocation of resources would have been con consistent, those resources weren't being used anywhere else. But I think it was more the focus and the fact that everybody working within ASR just knew that it was really important to deliver customer satisfaction. Mm. And the tools they had for doing that in terms of what they were getting out of the surveys was no different to what the previous contractor had and what any of Clarion's other external repairs contractors have had. Is there a, a question, do you think, I'm trying to make this not a leading question, but it, is there something about the way contracts with outsourced repair contractors are structured? As in, the, sometimes a contractor might want to make a repair, but they, they're not able to do it within the sort of structure of the contract that they've negotiated with the landlord. So you end up with the you know partially plastered walls, which infuriates customers and, and things like that. Well, I really don't think uh, in that respect there's any difference between certainly a Clarion. I don't think there's any difference between what the contractors uh, do and based on the contract and what uh, the in-house providers CBS and ASR were doing and. I think, I think with the in-house providers, it, it is much more the case that their culture was the same as Clarion's culture. Um, their resources were never moved from one area to another. 
and it was just really important to them. Now, you know, some people say, well, yes, when you when you subcontract, the contracts are always cost focused. You have to, you know, deliver repairs for this cost. But the cost goals apply just as much to CBS and ASR. You know, they don't they don't have unlimited resources to provide that service any more than the external contractors. So in a nutshell, I guess what you're saying is the the, the benefit, and there probably are, we should say that there are some pros and cons to this, but the benefit of, of moving your repairs in-house is that it's your culture. So if you want to prioritise customers, then that's, it's easier to, to spread that right the way down to the, to the people out there doing the job, if they're in-house. Yeah, I do, yeah. And, and whether there is a small uh, beneficial halo effect because, on the whole, tenants like the idea that the service is coming from the landlord, is coming from Clarion, it's not coming from an organisation that's nothing to do with Clarion, that maybe they don't trust as much, you know. And I think there's definite evidence that tenants do prefer uh, an in-house service rather than an external contractor, but obviously we wouldn't be able to quantify that. Thank you very much. Then after lunch, Rachel Allen, one of my colleagues at TLF, uh, spoke about effectively measuring touchpoint experiences. So Rachel, do you just want to quickly summarise what you said? Yeah, thanks Stephen. So what I talked about was how you can incorporate um, a technique, we call it customer experience modelling, to get some more information from your surveys. So most of the clients we work with conduct surveys and, well obviously, <laughs> and measure importance and satisfaction very often on a 1 to 10 scale of satisfaction. But there's probably a little bit more information they can get from their survey, from their response, if they just added in a few more strategically placed, very simple questions. So what I talked about was basically how to do this, when to do it, and how useful this information can be. Mm. So for instance, a typical use of customer experience modelling for a housing association, for instance, might be around the repairs experience. So a typical STAR questionnaire measures repairs and maintenance. What that doesn't tell a housing association is basically the difference between repairs and maintenance, and we know they're two very different things. Um, the other thing that you don't get from a typical STAR survey is you don't know whether the customer who's giving a score has actually had a repair or some maintenance completed recently. So whilst it's a useful score, and we know it's used for benchmarking quite a lot, what it doesn't give you is the context that would be useful. So with customer experience modelling, adding just a few simple questions can help expand that information for you. So for instance, typical questions might be something really simple along the lines of, have you reported a repair in the last six months? Yes or no, as simple as that. Then, has the repair been completed? Yes or no. Did you report the repair more than once? Yes or no. Did it take more than one visit to have the repair completed? Yes or no. And you get the idea. Just with a really simple series of very often closed questions, we can gather information that's going to add context. So in a nutshell, Rachel, by, by adding a couple of questions to you know, the annual relationship survey, you get beyond just the kind of perception, beyond, beyond the score, and you get something that's a lot more 
uh, I guess meaningful because you understand the context and what that particular customer has, has been through a little bit more. Mm. Yes, that's right. You get basically real information that's not based on what they think or how they feel, mm. although that obviously comes into it. It's based on what has actually happened to them. And this is where it's more useful, or it adds an extra layer, should mm. I say, because um, let's think about, say, your finance guys. To them, a customer satisfaction number is one thing, but what they want to know is, well, what does this actually mean for us and what does this mean for the organisation? So that little bit more information can help you understand, as I say, not just how satisfied people are, but, for instance, it can link a cost mm. to satisfaction. For example, if we're asking customers how many times they've called in to get something resolved or how many visits they've had to have a repair completed. Um, if we're thinking of housing clients, there's a real cost associated to that. And it's not just a cost as in your customers become less satisfied. There's a cost of handling the call. There's a cost of somebody going out to conduct that visit. And that's where that information becomes useful. Yeah, that's interesting. So what you were initially talking about and what we often think of first is that idea of how our behaviours and the experiences we, we, we sort of inflict on customers affect <laughs> how they feel. You know, did you turn up on time? How many times did you have to report it? Those sorts of things. But being able to link it at the back end as well and say, well, we had to make multiple visits. That has a cost to it. We had to deal with multiple inbound calls that could have been avoided. That has a cost to it. Mm. So you're able then to, to make a sort of financial argument as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they're not mutually exclusive and that's quite good in a way because what that means is you're not just keeping happy the stakeholders who are concerned about how satisfied customers are. You're also satisfying those stakeholders who want to know, yes, but how much is this costing us? Satisfaction isn't just a fluffy thing. It's about actually costing the money organisation, the organisation money. And for housing associations who might say, yes, but we're not about profit, what I would say is this isn't about profit, it's about efficiency and it's about having resources left to reinvest wisely. And that's why understanding the cost of your customer's experience from a satisfaction and resource point of view is really, really useful. So we've talked about the, you know, the customer experience modelling approach to, I guess, make that score that we, we might be struggling with in the relationship survey you know, more actionable, uh, something we can sort of pin down a bit more and, and link to costs. What about using that same approach with a more kind of, you know, event-driven touchpoint survey about responsive repairs for the sake of argument? Yeah, it's perfect for responsive repairs. There's two things with a touchpoint survey, especially with repairs. Most housing organisations are surveying customers who have been through the repairs process, which is great. Mm. But what you don't always know is how did they get there? And this is where in a touchpoint survey, you can add some extra layers of context around how many times they reported the repair, how many times somebody went out to attempt to make the repair, whether or not it was completed on the first attempt or not. So you can basically gather lots of other information around the process. So the way to do this is to have a think about what are the stages in the process within each touchpoint what stages does a customer go through in order to get whatever they're trying to do completed? And those steps can easily be incorporated into a touchpoint survey. So you mentioned repair, Stephen, and that's one of the obvious ones. Um, and it definitely works well because you need context mm. um, in a repair survey. Another good example is complaints. So you, you know, and complaints is something that all of our clients tend to be focusing on at the moment. But 
Customer experience modelling works really well for complaints. So, you know, how many times has somebody reported the same complaint? Um, you can just add lots of layers of context that's really going to help. So just to pick up on that, on that kind of balance between having your, you know, your relationship survey, perhaps a star survey, perhaps something else, uh, and a whole series of touchpoint surveys about repairs, complaints, perhaps reporting ASB and so on and so forth. Customer experience modelling, it feels like a technique that, that helps you get the relationship survey to be a bit more um, perhaps relevant feeling for, for your colleagues. So I think you know, that score mm. can feel unfair and it can feel out of date often. Putting those questions around it helps to make it clear whether or not the customer is talking about a recent experience or something that happened four years ago. And that might, you know, we might need to know that their perception is still coloured by something that happened four years ago, but it wouldn't be sensible to make decisions on that. Yeah. Is, is that fair, do you think? In an annual survey, it might be about even incorporating some touch points or seg segmentation you hadn't thought about. In a touch point survey, it's about adding some extra layers of context that basically help you get down to the nitty gritty of not just how a customer feels, but what has mm. happened to them. So you're right, you're adding that context on that makes it really, really clear to people within the organisation why a customer is giving the score that they're giving. And that's really useful because that's sometimes one of the criticisms of touchpoint surveys where people start saying, or employees may start saying, yeah, but they didn't talk to me, or, well, I know why that's happened, mm. or, well, that was bound to happen to them, wasn't it? They, con they, you know, they, made, they contacted the contact centre, and then it was the contact centre that dealt with the repair. But by adding a few extra questions, you can start to add all the granularity that helps you understand the results, what happened, why it happened, and where it happened as well. Yeah, and, and I guess, you know, sometimes that will help to bust a few myths, perhaps, that, you know, that actually... That isn't true. It is about what you did or didn't do. And sometimes it might um, help to uh, show that the employees are quite right. And actually, yeah, yeah. You know, that is the case. Yeah, I think there's a few things. It might uncover things that, that you didn't realise were happening. So, for instance, reporting a repair more than once. Mm. <laughs> um, or, you know, an, a, a contractor goes out three or four times to get something repaired. Um, or it might uncover things as well that you hadn't really thought about. Or... One of the ways it's really useful is for measuring the impact each experience has on a customer. So mm. for instance, based on what they've gone through, looking at it, how it affects their satisfaction. So it works on lots and lots of different levels and that's why it's such a useful tool because the questions can be quite short, mm. which means that they're easy to presenting their results and they can be applied to other layers of information that you've gathered. So it just tends to work on a lot of different levels but what you just mentioned is right sometimes sometimes employees fear this type of information because they worry it's going to almost be too granular mm. and point to them failing to do something but actually the opposite can be quite true what it does is it often supports something that an employee's been saying for quite a long time so mm. for instance let's take repairs because it's the example that everybody likes to use is employees or staff might be saying, well, actually, you know what? These repairs are taking more than one visit to sort out. Or people are having to call in again and again, and that's why they're unhappy. And 
gathering information through customer experience modeling can add some basically it sounds a bit harsh but it can give employees some ammunition because it can support what they're telling you mm. so it's not about a witch hunt and it's not about pinpointing where things are going wrong very often it's supporting employees as well yeah more often than not i, I would agree yeah and the, the other point i wanted to pick up on rachel because I, I think it, for me it's probably the most powerful bit is is that uh, idea about where the impact on satisfaction comes from because it would be relatively easy to sit down and write a kind of best practice list of, let's take repairs, you know, you should introduce yourself, you should show an ID card, you should put overshoes on, you should explain mm. what you're going to do. All the, we could come up with a list of 10, 20 things really easily, but how do we know which are the really important ones and which are less important? And that's where the, the experience modelling allows you to answer that statistically, that actually of those, you know, yes, they all are a good thing to do, but actually explaining what you're going to do is more important than giving your name or something you know I don't know what the, the stats turn yeah. out to be yeah you're right so we've got the obvious questions that everybody asks you know did the contractor the or the the operator show their ID and all that type of thing that's great we've got yes and no information so that's no no problem at all but what the experience modeling does is a it allows you to expand on that um, very quick and easy questions, yes, no questions um, very often. But what it means is that you can split all of the other information you've gathered by the customer experience modeling responses. Mm. Now, the answer I've just given is more complicated than how it's actually done, mm. but it's really easy to do. So basically where you've gathered satisfaction scores or if you use a customer satisfaction index, or if you're doing a star survey, it may be where you use the overall satisfaction score. It means you can also split all of those scores by your customer experience modeling answers as well. So things like, was the repair, repair um, handled right first time? Yes or no? You can split everything else based on the answer to that question. So it just adds another layer that you can use for splitting and slicing results. Mm -hmm. To be honest, it can be as simple as or, or as complicated as you want it to be. Mm -hmm. um, so I've worked with clients where we've used it to look at, let's say um, we, ask, we ask a respondent how many times they've reported a repair. You know, when you're further down the road and you've got all this information, you can look at it by repair type. Mm -hmm. It may be that when it's a plumbing repair, actually it's done first time, but when it's something to do with a roof, it takes six or seven times. It can be as easy or as complicated as you want it to be, and that's the beauty of it. That probably wraps up why customer experience modeling is such an important part of, of making your survey, A, easier to interpret, a bit more context, and B, much more actionable. Yeah, I think there's one final thing that's worth oh. worth adding as well. And it, it, you may be listening to this thinking, oh, blimey, how do I actually do this? It sounds quite complicated. And if I had some advice, it would be to start, start simply, just add one or two questions that maybe need a yes or a no answer. And then as you get more confident in the information that you're seeing and the depth of insight it's bringing you, add in some more questions as you go on. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. So I'm back uh, with Vicky Harris, uh, because in the afternoon, Vicky and I uh, did a double act. Uh, we, we both uh, took part in this talk about the digital revolution in housing. Um, and that was, well, it was, <laughs> as always with a double act, it's quite hard to, to describe exactly how we chopped it up. But mm. we kind of did a combination of some stats and facts and figures and a bit of interpretation about, about what it might mean. So I started with, with some, some general facts and figures about kind of what digital is like in the UK. Um, in particular, looking at the latest figures from, from the ONS, 
they estimate that only 8% of, of UK adults have never used the internet, which is interesting because it tallies you know, pretty closely with the government's estimate for, for the number in, in the digital inclusion strategy, mm-hmm. for the number of people who will never be able to use the internet because of either disability or literacy issues and so on. Um, so the question I sort of started with is, you know, is the digital revolution effectively over? Have, how's everyone who's ever going to use the internet actually use the internet? Mm. Um, and then Vicky took over to have a, a, a bit of a, a look at what the facts and figures tell us about the housing sector in particular, which, you know, which may be a little bit different from the average population. Hmm. So we um, we'd cal- we'd, uh, compiled a lot of information from our um, housing clients, um, obviously understanding their tenants' digital um, sort of usage is obviously quite key to them um, and how they might use that going forward. So we compiled a lot of information from housing clients and from the panel um, and we had about 12,000 records over about four years, which was really interesting. It enabled us to look at sort of trends and trends over time. Um, so around about seven out of ten social housing tenants are actively using the internet. Mm. Um, and as you might expect, the main demographic where this differs is by age. So as age increases, internet usage decreases, um, which I don't really think there's any, any surprises there. And we started to look at it by um, sort of channel, so how people are accessing the internet. And we started to see a few surprises here. Um, smartphones being the main the main sort of vehicle that people are accessing the internet by. Smartphones, laptops and tablets were the key three areas. But then when we started to think about it, obviously a, like a, a tablet or a laptop, you've got a cost involved, you know, mm. there's an initial outlay, whereas a smartphone, the cost is rolled up in the contract. Um, and if you've perhaps got sort of less income, smartphones might be sort of the one device you're going to get. You can have, you've obviously got a telephone without a landline and, you know, all the sort of it's a computer and you can access the internet, emails and so on and so forth. So that kind of made a little bit more sense. And we did a bit of desk research just to try and validate what, what we'd found. Um, and we found similar things. And when we split out the channels by age, what was a bit surprising was sort of laptops and tablets um, accounted for around about um, a third of all age groups accessing the internet mm. up to you know for the 85 plus which is fascinating the, the kind of yeah. you know, silver surface or whatever we're calling well, yeah, them yeah. Are, are actually doing it on tablets more than any other device which yeah. um, you used uh, I don't know if you coined this phrase or not but you used the phrase uh, hand-me-ups which I thought was brilliant yeah well I, I guess the logic of your smartphone is um, it's a contract you know, two years once your contract's finished, you tend to get a new one and, you know, bigger, better one or whatever. But what do you do with the old one? You know, it's still perfectly working order. And I know for like, for example, like we've given my grand one, so she now we can send her in uh, pictures of sort of a grandchild. And, and it's just a bit of peace of mind as well when she's out and about that should she need to make a call, she, she can do when she's not reliant on anything. Um, so yeah, so I would, I would thinking really, are people sort of recycling internally within the family? Are they, rather than hand-me-downs, the sort of hand-me-ups, as it were? So it's just a theory. But um, when I looked into, um, you can get sort of SIM-only contracts from about three or four pounds a month. Um, so if you've got an unlocked device, it does, you know, it's quite affordable. Sense, yeah. yeah. And in terms of kind of implications for, for people in the sector and perhaps other sectors as well, what were your kind of conclusions on you know what what it means if mm. about my digital strategy? What should I do? Well, I think um, 
there are more people, social housing tenants online than perhaps people might think. Seven out of ten um, was, you know, well, what we understood. There will be, you know, you said about eight to ten percent that aren't going to be online. We found that in, in social housing as well, be it due to sort of disability or literacy issues. Some we thought there might be sort of cost implications, you know, they haven't got a computer, they haven't got an inter the internet access. Um, they weren't saying they don't want to, they're just saying they haven't got the physical capabilities, which we perhaps inferred is maybe, you know, due to the cost. But the biggest sort of, um, about two thirds of the people not accessing the internet were saying, I don't want to, or haven't got mm. the, the skills or the confidence, which is sort of attitudinal stuff, which, you know, with a bit of help, support, encouragement, training perhaps, you might be able to sort of move them um, sort of in the direction of, you know, of your online platforms. So I think, you know, per housing association, it'd be worth understanding your own unique makeup and that that's going to vary on sort of your tenants and age makeup and I guess need types. But I think if you can understand what your tenants look like, that's going to give you a good starter for 10. And I think also just being honest about your digital offering, you know, how good is it? Like I said earlier, people are on, you know, interacting mm. online with banking, shopping. So it really needs to be on a comparable yeah, level, we, really, for people. We kind of challenged people in the room a little bit yeah. on that and said, we, we did a bit of a show of the hands, you know, who, who allows residents to report a repair online? And almost everyone does mm -hmm. in some way. Uh, there was slightly wobbly hands, but yeah. almost everyone does. And then we asked how many people, like what, roughly what percentage of people, uh, people's repairs are being reported online. And it's not a scientific thing, but roughly seen about 15, 20% of repairs probably um, across the room being reported online, which, you know, given that they're all, you know, all of your customers are using Amazon and mm. so on and so forth, mm. that there is a question, at least, what's the reason they're not choosing to use your digital services? Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think... Um... They need, you know, you need to be honest that you're going to be competing against the banks and the mm. all these other retail sectors provisions, really. Yeah, and the banks is a great example, I think, of a, of a sector that shows people are quite willing to embrace digital channels if they see a value to it. So, you know, lots of people use online banking, lots of people use mm -hmm. a banking app because there is some value in it. Although I got a question from the floor while I was talking about this. Uh, uh, <laughs> the guy challenged you slightly and said, that's because the banks are so terrible if you phone them up and we're too good. <laughs> um, which I think there is some truth in that. Mm. You know, In a way, that was a push rather than a pull, although I think it's a bit of both. Mm. Um, and I think for the housing sector, my challenge would be there's not enough pull at the moment mm. towards using self-serve channels. Yeah, but I think as well, I mean, the banks have almost paved the way that people are used to interacting in that, that method. And, and I think, as you said on the day, universal credit, is all you know mm. that's all done online so people are used to transacting online that's you know the groundwork's been done so i think it's just make it as easy you know for people as possible and make sure they're aware of it and i think people will just do what they've always done um in the absence of being told anything different so and it is it should be a win-win really because it'll be cheaper for housing associations to service um online mm. and then people can do it at their own leisure, it's probably quicker, it's probably easier, there's no queue to sit in, you know, you can do it any time of the day. So, you know, it should be more convenient, really. And then uh, I wrapped up just with a few thoughts about questions that everyone needs to address, I think, for their digital strategy. Uh, and I guess my main takeaway was 
digital the digital revolution is not offering services through digital channels it's not kind of lifting and shifting the same thing mm. and putting it online it's about integration it's about you know having a system where all the bits speak to each other that will enable you to use data about customers you're going to start needing to think about new data sources from smart homes and the internet of everything mm. and you've got 5g coming down the line you've got the potential that voice might bring uh, in terms of digital inclusion mm-hmm. is that a good way of getting older people to be able to use your digital services um, how is it going to affect ways of working you know are, are people going to be in the office so much so there's an awful lot of things that, that need to be in your digital strategy it's not just a case of having some services available mm. on your website yeah, I think that's fair. And I think that's the ideal of where we want to get to. And I think um, some of the challenges within the room from Andy's session earlier in the day um, is a lot of the housing associations merging and just getting their systems on one platform, you know, let alone this ideal um, platform, the, the ideal end result, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a bit sceptical about the, the one true system uh, that everyone's going to have, but well, let's Wait hope. And see. Yeah, thanks, Vicky. <laughs> So at the end of the day, Chris, you, you had a, a talk about problem and complaint handling, why well, it's never going to go out of fashion. You were supposed to have 40 minutes. I think on the day you did it in about 15. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. Um, sort of super speed version. So what, what were some of the highlights of what you said? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it's an interesting session because I think that the complaint handling used to be, it was a half day briefing, has turned now, has morphed over the years into a 20 minute webinar and then a 15 minute blast through at this, <laughs> on, on the day. But I think really what what we were trying to get across with that session was to move away from seeing the complaint as being the driver of dissatisfaction and this act of attempting to eliminate complaints and to flip that round and to basically say, what we should do is we should embrace complaints for what they are, a little bit like repairs. They're a wonderful opportunity to either create a fantastic impression um, in the eyes of the residents, or they're a a really, really dangerous thing if you get them Mm. wrong and can have a very long-lasting, very profound impact on that individual's overall assessment of the housing association and then obviously what happens there on, you know, after that. So it was that sort of sense of, of saying, you know, let's treat them for what they are as a wonderful opportunity or a fantastic opportunity to create chaos and it become a car crash. So it was really looking at that and it was looking at how we can essentially, what is the best practice for measuring? Mm. And, you know, as you know, with the work that we do, there are typically two ways of doing it. It can be incorporated into an overall annually style relationship piece of research. Um, and you can, and, and that's good and that, that works really well. There is a danger there that you really like touching it. So you've got to be really, really careful with the questions that you ask. Or as a great many of our clients also do, they can incorporate it into a complaints survey in itself, which can allow you to really get into the detail of what happened with complaints. And it was just to demonstrate really the the, 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 the pitfalls and the merits of both of those approaches, because they both have you know um, advantages and disadvantages attached to them. But I think it was still to to in essence get across 
the fact that it's not, the complaint is not the driver. It's how it's handled mm -hmm. that has the biggest impact. But of course there is, and I always used to think that it was just about the way that it was handled. But actually I think that some of the podcasts that I've been listening that you and Greg have done talk about actually we should never forget the speed of the resolution. Speed is really important, yeah. Absolutely. And you can have the complaint, you know, resolved in your eyes, but it actually took forever for it to be done. Mm. I think they'll forget, they forget very quickly about the fact that it was resolved and just that it was an absolute pain to, to do. So we should never lose sight of the fact that if you can have the perfect combination of it being handled really well with all of those wonderful behaviours that employees should exude when they're dealing with the, with, with the issues, but do it quickly, mm. we know that the data that we get from that tells us that those people that have had that perfect experience we know that they will be more satisfied than residents that haven't even had any issues in the first place. So it, it absolutely sends that message that it's not, it's not the, the complaint in itself is not the issue, it is ultimately the way that it is handled and of course the speed of the resolution. And I think for me to pick up on your point uh, of, about the difference between what you learn in a relationship survey asking about complaints and in a specific complaint survey, for me, the reason you need both is so many complaints never get to your complaint handling no. process, the, the official process. They're dealt mm -hmm. with rightly, you know, by uh, by staff throughout the business out the front line. Yeah. Um, and in a in a business that's good at customer experience, staff are making good judgments and dealing with it very quickly, and that's perfect. In an organisation that is less good at customer experience, they tend to deal with it not very well, um, mm. and maybe bat them away or put customers off. Mm. And that ends up being a very frustrating experience for customers, and you never really know about it because it's not captured in your official complaints process. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's all about judgment, really. Getting mm. you know the the right judgment about where is this best dealt with? Do I need to escalate it, or can I deal with it? Mm. But doing it with the kind of customer customer first kind of attitude. Absolutely, and and I think it, it's not you know in an ideal world, we of course don't want anybody to have, have issue to complain or reason to complain. We don't want complaints. But the reality is that that's folly. Mm -hmm. That's just never going to happen. But it's equally not about sort of encouraging or, or, or creating something that... So this tends to happen with some of my B2B clients, is you can see that the cogs are whirring in the mind when you say it's not about the elimination of complaints, but it's about the embracing of them for what they are. And then they come up with this grandiose idea, well, we'll just implement a a problem that we know we can deal with and deal with very quickly. <laughs> That's not what we're saying. You know, it's a very, very different world. But but it, it's not about the elimination. It's about accepting that they happen. It's probably about accepting that they are very much, the people that make official complaints are the tip of an iceberg. There's a huge number of people, un, you know, that do not complain. And, and often, rather cynically, they believe that you're just simply not going to deal with it. You know, you're just not going to do anything with it. But it's about encouraging, making it easy for people to complain. But it still comes down to the fact that you've got to do the business when it actually comes in and it's recognised. Absolutely. Mm. Thank you very much, Chris. I think that, that wraps up our, our sort of talk through the Housing Insight Conference. Pleasure. Uh, if you were there, thank you very much for coming along. If you weren't, well, hopefully now you've, you've got a, an idea of what you missed uh, and perhaps you'll come along next year. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.